1946, the first major assault on the victories of the New Deal took place when the Republicans took Congress and immediately began introducing repressive legislation, including the so-called Taft-Hartley Act, um, which was in connection with the U.S.-British announcement of opening the Cold War, allegedly to stop Soviet aggression, but actually more to contain the Soviet Union and to smash popular movements in Europe uh, and Africa and Asia in particular. We are looking at, as people are saying now, an existential question. First of all, will humanity make it out of the 21st century? And then, will the United States become more like Turkey, Hungary, Russia, and Poland? That is, with the outer appearance of democracy, but heavily repressed, and in fact, an authoritarian state. Hey, welcome to a special Pod Extra edition of Labor History Today. That was Bill Fletcher Jr., trade unionist, writer, and past president of Trans-Africa Forum. He moderated a powerful plenary session at the 12th Annual Conference of the Labor Research and Action Network on Wednesday, June 7th, co-hosted at Georgetown University by the Kelmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. LRAN is a project of the Jobs with Justice Education Fund. We're going to have more from this session, Democracy Under Siege, Resisting Tyranny Through a 21st Century Labor Movement, on future shows. But Bill's opening remarks were so powerful and so timely that we wanted to get them out right away in this special pod extra. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. counter-revolution that we've been witnessing has several particular years that are critical to understand in order to understand where we are right now. 1946, 1954 to 56, 1960, 1980, and 1994. And from the course of 1946 on, you start to see the evolution in different tendencies on the right. And we begin to understand that the right wing is not monolithic. In 1946, the first major assault on the victories of the New Deal took place when the Republicans took Congress and immediately began introducing repressive legislation, including the so-called Taft-Hartley Act, um, which was in connection with the U.S.-British announcement of opening the Cold War, allegedly to stop Soviet aggression, but actually more to contain the Soviet Union and to smash popular movements in Europe uh, and Africa and Asia in particular. The uh, labor movement at that point uh, began to eat itself out, much like the uh, a character described by Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five, where a dog consumes a piece of meat that has a coil in it and chews itself in order to get the coil. Uh, organized labor did, in effect, the same thing, and we've been living the consequences ever since. 1954-56, was the uh, commencement of the white resistance 
It was, the, it was in opposition to Brown versus a Board of Education and efforts at desegregation. The rise of citizen councils, there were major splits in organized labor. There were many uh, state federations and central labor councils in the South that wanted to defend Jim Crow, and it created another little but poorly documented and understood civil war within organized labor. But it was primarily a defensive battle, no matter how uh, violent it was. 1968, we see a change, and the change actually begins in the aftermath of the 64 uh, uh, Goldwater campaign, when Goldwater was crushed, but an element within Goldwater's campaign realized that there was something that Goldwater and later uh, George Wallace were touching on that needed to be developed. So articulated by people like Paul Weyrich uh, and others, they began the development of what came to be known as the New Right. And the New Right ends up carrying out a tactical alliance with this uh, opportunistic politician out of California named Richard Nixon, um, and infuses with Nixon the idea of something needs to be done to turn the Democratic Party into the Black Party and the Republican Party into the non-black party. And that, in essence, was the Southern strategy, uh, which I think is better known as the white people's strategy. Um, and, but Nixon was, was uh, very crafty, and he understood that in trying to beat back the, the, the victories of the 20th century, it couldn't just be a full-blown, and that he needed to find allies among peoples of color. Thus, with black folks, he reached out and created this whole thing around black capitalism. Um, but people like Weyrich and others looked at Nixon as liberal and as an opportunist and not someone to be trusted, but someone who could be used, something that we on the left uh, often seem to be allergic to doing. Right? We, have to, we set the purity test as opposed to understanding that the people you're not going to agree with in fact, you may despise them the way Weyrich despised Nixon, but you see the utility in uniting with them because of particular objectives that can be won. And they won them with Supreme Court uh, posts, various pieces of legislation, and helping to shift the dialogue to the right, and particularly the notion of the silent majority, which over the years has morphed in terms of what that's meant. Um, 1980 is pivotal with the, uh, with the Reagan election because Reagan goes to the right of Nixon, uh, begins his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which everybody understood at the time was a clear signal to white supremacists in the South and so-called states' rights people uh, that, they, that Reagan represented something different. And he, like Nixon, was prepared to ally with forces that were further to the right. Um, and saw them as useful. Now, it's around this time that segments of the right in, within the Republican Party decide to begin a purge of the Republican Party and eliminate its liberal wing. And this becomes very, very important over time, and it helps to explain some of the problems that Republicans have in terms of bucking people like, uh, like Trump. But they basically kept moving to the right, purging uh, uh, the right, uh, the Republican Party. Weyrich and others conduct, uh, concocted a, a brilliant a, a strategic approach, which was that in order to defeat what I would argue to overthrow the 20th century, that what you needed to do was move a campaign or project multi-decade uh, uh, 
project that involved litigation, politics and legislation, and mass movements. So it wasn't just one or the other. It was utilizing these different elements in order to chip away at not just the New Deal, but the various pro progressive victories that had been won in the 20th century. Liberals and progressives failed to grasp this, and the role of uh, the, the response of liberals and progressives was much more akin to the guy that jumped off the Empire State Building, and when he fell past the 40th floor was overheard saying, so far, so good. Um, and, and so there was a constant sense that it's not that bad. It could get worse, which of course the guy that fell off the building realized. Um, and so there was a defensiveness in, the, in, the, in response to Roe v. Wade, for instance. Instead of taking a frontal assault on state legislatures and changing the constitutions, there was an over-reliance on the court. Why? Because we all knew the court would never overturn uh, precedent, right? A fundamental precedent. And in fact, we were being told by, again and again by conservative uh, uh, legal uh, uh, judges and, and lawyers that they would respect precedent and uh, they clearly decided uh, to go in a different direction. So we've got to understand this counter-revolution, and then in 1994, we of course had Gingrich and the contract on America and the, um, the efforts that were taken right then to change the discussion that there was no more playing patty cake with the Democrats, that this was in fact a war. A country founded on settler colonialism, indentured servitude, racial slavery, the oppression of women underwent tumultuous changes in the 20th century, advancing democracy even within the context of capitalism. But we needed to expect that there was going to be a counterattack. Um, the seizing on the impact of neoliberal globalization, elements of the right which had helped to introduce neoliberalism, helped to mobilize and expanded their base in order to overthrow the 20th century. And as I mentioned, that involved uh, purging the Republican Party, as well as the issue of building mass movements. And one thing about building mass movements was that the right understands better than progressives that you set the bar low for people to enter into a mass movement. You don't set it high. You make it easy for people to get into a mass movement. You can get, you could, in the 70s, you could get into the anti-abortion movement while being pro-busing. You could get into the anti-Panama Canal movement while be, being uh, pro-abortion, right? We on the left, we, it's like, we, we just keep raising the bar. 95% agreement and we say, well, that's simply not enough. What about the question in North Korea? And it's like, oh my God, right? We just go on and on, right? The right understands, make it easy for people to get into mass movements, work with them, and make sure that there's people that are coordinating those mass movements that share a similar view. God, I wish we could learn. Um, so we have a Republican Party now, which, uh, I, as I would argue, has now become the party for dictatorship. It's not a party that even resembles uh, Nixon's party or Reagan's party for that matter. Within this Republican Party, there's a, a neo-fascist core and there are millions of people, mainly but not exclusively white, looking for vengeance. We're dealing with a revanchist movement that Weirich and others helped to develop. They called it the new right. It's essentially a right-wing populist movement. And, and they are out for revenge. They are looking 
at the world as having taken from them what they believe that they were entitled to. And, and they are looking at the world, uh, the middle strata are particularly saying that they're being crushed between the super rich and the poor and that their idea of what America was going to be for them is evaporating in front of their eyes. And last but not least, people of color and women who were always understood to be the cushions to prevent the disasters of capitalism from affecting large sections of the white population, well, we weren't going to cushion their fall anymore. Our task, should we decide to accept it, is to smash what I would call the neo-Confederate bloc. That is, the forces on the right that includes, but it's not limited to the fascists, um, this, and, and completely disempower them. So when I'm talking about destroy, because this probably is being monitored by people, I want everyone clear, I'm a person of peace, I'm advocating nonviolence when I'm talking about destroying them, I'm talking about very peacefully. Do we get it? Say yes, Bill. Yes. Very good, very good. Okay, so when I comes out on Fox News, we'll, we'll be cool. But we need to destroy the right. That is, we need to completely disempower them politically so that they're completely ineffective. And, and, and in that sense, um, we need a broad front that opposes the right, that includes people that we don't necessarily like. And somewhere in the core of this really needs to be labor. And it means that organized labor which has a long tradition of being completely cowardly when it comes to addressing so-called divisive issues like race and sex, now must not only talk about race and sex, but must talk about the danger from the far right. And that we are looking at, as people are saying now, an existential question, right? First of all, will humanity make it out of the 21st century? And then will the United States become more like Turkey, Hungary, Russia, and Poland. That is, with the outer appearance of democracy, but heavily repressed, and in fact, an authoritarian state. To do this, we need new ideas. We need clear objectives. We need organization. Because, friends, this ain't going to happen on magic. Thank you. Bill Fletcher, Jr. introducing a plenary session at the 12th Annual Conference of the Labor Research and Action Network this week at Georgetown University. That's it for this week's special Pod Extra. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Special thanks this week to Patrick Dixon and all the crew at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor for inviting us to cover the Labor Research and Action Network Conference. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Our team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. 
for Labor History Today. This has been Chris Carlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.